Hello and welcome to the Berkeley Remix, a podcast from the Oral History Center of the Bancroft Library at the University of California, Berkeley. Founded in 1954, the center records and preserves the history of California, the nation, and our interconnected world. Lately, things have been challenging and uncertain. We're enduring an order to shelter in place, trying to read the news, but not too much, and prioritize self-care. Like many of you, we're in need of some relief. So we'd like to provide you with some. Episodes in this series, which we're calling Coronavirus Relief, may sound a bit different from those we've produced in the past, the ones that tell narrative stories drawing from our collection of oral histories. But like many of you, we here at the Oral History Center are in need of a break. We'll be adding some new episodes in this coronavirus relief series with stories from the field, things that have been on our minds, interviews that have been helping us get through, and find small moments of happiness. Hello, this is Roger Erdley Pryor. I'm an interviewer and historian of science, technology, and the environment at Berkeley's Oral History Center. For this episode of Coronavirus Relief, I want to share stories with you about the very first Earth Day in 1970, which just celebrated its 50th anniversary. Mercy, mercy me, Earth Day turned 50 in April 2020. A half century ago, on April 22nd, 1970, environmental awareness and concern exploded in a nationwide outpouring of celebrations and protests during the world's first Earth Day. The first Earth Day drew an estimated 20 million participants across the United States, roughly a tenth of the national population, with involvement from over 10,000 schools and 2,000 colleges and universities. That first Earth Day, on April 22nd, became the then-largest single-day protest in U.S. history. The actual numbers of participants were even higher. Several universities, notably the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, organized massive Earth Day teach-ins, some of which they held in the weeks before April 22nd to avoid overlapping with their final exams. From New York City to San Francisco, from Cincinnati to Santa Barbara, from Birmingham to Ann Arbor, millions of Americans gathered on campuses, met in classrooms, visited parks and public lands together, participated in local cleanups, and marched in the streets for greater environmental awareness and to demand greater environmental protections. Even Wisconsin Senator Gaylord Nelson was surprised, and it was Senator Nelson who in the fall of 1969 first promoted the idea for nationwide teach-ins about the environment. He called Earth Day in 1970 a truly astonishing grassroots explosion. In the 50 years since, Earth Day events have spread globally to nearly 200 nations, making it the world's largest secular holiday celebrated by more than a billion people each year. But this past Earth Day, despite years of planning for Earth Day's 50th anniversary, the novel coronavirus, itself a worldwide environmental event, disrupted Earth Day 2020 plans across the planet. We were not able to celebrate Earth Day's golden anniversary as we previously planned. Instead, we can commemorate it with recollections and lessons learned by those who attended and organized the first Earth Day events in 1970. The Oral History Center's archives list over 70 interviews that mention Earth Day. I've selected a few here from the first Earth Day out of our Sierra Club Oral History Project, 
a collaboration between the Sierra Club and Berkeley's Oral History Center, which itself began soon after the first Earth Day. These Earth Day memories from Sierra Club members begin with experiences in the streets of New York City. They include memories at the forefront of environmental law, and they conclude with a Sierra Club member who is inspired to activism at the University of Michigan's first ever Earth Day teach-in. We'll begin with Michelle Peralt, who in the 1980s and 1990s was twice elected as president of the Sierra Club. Back in 1970, Michelle Peralt lived and worked in New York City as an elementary school science teacher. New York City was the site of the nation's largest Earth Day celebrations, which captured nationwide media attention, given that NBC, CBS, ABC, The New York Times, Newsweek, and Time Magazine were all headquartered in Manhattan. Peralt, who was then 28 years old, taught in the demonstration school of the Bank Street College of Education. Bank Street College was founded more than 50 years earlier, in 1916, by a woman named Lucy Sprague Mitchell, a child education reformer, and before that, Berkeley's first dean of women. The Oral History Center has a great interview with her, too. But back to Michelle Peralt. For her part, Peralt told me during her oral history how she organized, quote, a Bank Street program out in the street for Earth Day in New York City. We had our booth, and I had the kids there. Mostly, we sang songs and danced around and had some visuals and books that people could read or get, and we had some pamphlets from the Bank Street College that talked about it. In the process, Peralt and her students joined hundreds of thousands of other Earth Day participants in the streets of Manhattan. John Lindsay, the Republican mayor of New York City, had closed traffic on Fifth Avenue for Earth Day, and he made Central Park available for gigantic crowds to march and celebrate together. The New York Times estimated that over 100,000 people visited New York's Union Square throughout the day. Earlier in 1970, Michelle Peralt joined student teachers to plan Earth Day teach-ins in New York. That's when Peralt met Rene Dubose, a famous microbiologist, an optimistic environmentalist, and a Pulitzer Prize-winning author who coined the phrase, think globally, act locally. At that time, Michelle Peralt served as education chair for the Sierra Club Atlantic chapter in New York, for whom she had recently started a newsletter called Right Now, a monthly publication full of ideas for environmental educators. Two copies of Right Now are included in the appendix to Michelle Peralt's printed oral history, which is available online like all the Oral History Center's interviews. In one edition of Right Now, Peralt recalled Rene Dubose's advice for the upcoming First Earth Day. Dubose, quote, stressed the importance and need for people to take time to reevaluate what is needed for quality of life, to sift and sort alternatives, perhaps not in existence now, to look in a new way at what the future could be like, and then devise plans for making it so. Peralt added this, quote, we as teachers need to ask new questions about our own values, about our own social and economic systems, and the relationships to the environment, so as to enrich the present and potential environment for children. In 1971, less than a year after Earth Day, Michelle Peralt organized at Bank Street College an education conference titled Environment and Children. She invited Renee Dubose as the keynote speaker, and she remembered, Dubose called for stimulating environments for children that offered, quote, the ability to choose, to have variety, to not just be in one place where everything was static around them and where they weren't in control. 
He had a big paper on this whole issue of free will and being able to make choices and how the environment would influence them. Years later, after moving to California, Michelle Peralt took her own children on annual backpacking trips deep into the high Sierra Nevada mountains where they could run free and wild, stimulated by natural wilderness. Michelle Peralt was recruited to the Sierra Club shortly before Earth Day by a guy named David Sive, a pioneer of environmental law in New York, whose children Peralt taught in her science classroom. The Sierra Club Oral History Project includes a great interview with David Sive from 1982. But another Sierra Club member and trailblazer of environmental law is James Mormon. Mormon shared his own memories of the first Earth Day during his oral history in 1984. Back in 1970, Mormon had then recently joined the newly created Center for Law and Social Policy, or CLASP. CLASP is an influential public interest law firm in Washington, D.C. In the late 1960s, Jim Mormon was a young trial lawyer who brought two cases that became landmarks in environmental law. The first was a petition to the U.S. Department of Agriculture to deregister the pesticide DDT. The second case was a suit against the U.S. Department of the Interior challenging construction of the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. For the pipeline case, Mormon pioneered use of the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, which had just been enacted in January 1970. Based on NEPA, Mormon demanded from the Interior Department a detailed environmental impact statement for the pipeline project. Mormon recalled, quote, The preliminary injunction hearing for the Trans-Alaska Pipeline was originally set for Earth Day. When the judge first set the hearing, I said, holy cow, he set the hearing for this on Earth Day, and he doesn't know it, and the oil companies don't know it. I'm going to get to make my argument on Earth Day. That's fantastic. But then there was a postponement, and the argument didn't occur until two weeks later. But it was wonderful anyway. Jim Mormon won his case, but Congress directly intervened to approve the pipeline by law. Nonetheless, Mormon's injunction forced the oil companies to spend more than three years and a small fortune on engineering, analysis, and documentation for the project. The final environmental impact statement for the Trans-Alaska Pipeline stretched to nine volumes. Mormon's legal intervention helped produce a safer pipeline that today is still considered a wonder of engineering. In the year following the first Earth Day, Mormon accepted a new job as the founding executive director of the Sierra Club Legal Defense Fund, now known as Earth Justice. It was one of the nation's earliest and remains one of the most influential public interest environmental law organizations. Mormon directed the Sierra Club Legal Defense Fund through 1974, and he worked as a staff attorney with the organization through 1977. That was when he became Assistant Attorney General for Land and Natural Resources under President Jimmy Carter. But in his 1984 oral history, Jim Mormon reflected on the importance of the first Earth Day for environmental law. Quote, The fact is, Earth Day came rather early in all of this environmental law movement. We've been living off the energy created by Earth Day ever since. Mike McCloskey, also a lawyer, couldn't agree more. Back in 1970, Mike McCloskey was still getting used to his new role as executive director of the Sierra Club, a position McCloskey took up in the wake of David Brower and held through 1985. In the first of Mike McCloskey's two oral histories, that first one from 1981, McCloskey recalled the Earth Day era as, quote, a very exciting time in terms of developing new theories of environmental law. Our spirits were charged up. 
The courts were anxious to make law in the field of the environment. There were judges who were reading, and they were stimulated by the prospect. They were eager to get environmental cases. What became clear over the next few years after Earth Day were that dozens of, if not hundreds of laws were passed and agencies brought into existence. He's right. A few months after the first Earth Day, President Nixon established the Environmental Protection Agency. Over the next few years, Congress passed a suite of landmark environmental statutes, including an amended Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Safe Drinking Water Act, the Endangered Species Act, the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act, the Toxic Substances Control Act, and many others, all of which, thus far, have avoided extinction. Mike McCloskey remembered the first Earth Day in 1970 as an explosion of the environmental consciousness that had grown steadily throughout the late 1960s. In 1968, not long before Earth Day, conservationists like McCloskey thought the best of times had already happened. The creation of Redwood National Park in California, North Cascades National Park in Washington State, and the passage of both the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act and the National Trails System Act all occurred in that revolutionary year of 1968. McCloskey recalled, quote, We at that moment thought that this was some high point in conservation history and wondered whether much would happen thereafter. In January 1969, President Richard Nixon came into office. McCloskey and other Sierra Club leaders remembered, We felt, quote, very defensive and threatened, not realizing that we were on the threshold of an explosion into a period of our greatest growth and influence. By 1970, instead of a plateau or even a decline in environmental efforts, Sierra Club leaders saw the American environmental movement experience what McCloskey described as, quote, a tremendous takeoff in terms of the overall quantity of activity, enthusiasm, and support with Earth Day. It was just an eruption of activity on every front. But much to his surprise, with Earth Day in 1970, McCloskey also saw how many traditional leaders of the conservation movement were quickly regarded as, quote, old hat and out of step with the times. In their place, McCloskey witnessed how people, quote, emerged at the student level, literally from nowhere, who were inventing new standards for what was right and what should be done and whole new theories overnight. For instance, I remember hostesses who were suddenly saying, I can't serve paper napkins anymore. I've got to have cloth napkins. Someone had written that paper napkins were terribly wrong and colored toilet paper was regarded as a sin. But all sorts of people from different backgrounds coalesced in the environmental movement. People who were interested in public health suddenly emerged and very strongly. One such person was Doris Solarius. In 1970, Doris Solarius lived in Ann Arbor, Michigan with her children and husband, Dick Solarius, a professor of botany who was then teaching at the University of Michigan. According to Doris, she and Dick were both members of the Sierra Club in 1970, but mostly for hiking and social engagement, less for activism. The extraordinary events surrounding Earth Day in Ann Arbor changed everything. As Doris explained, quote, Earth Day came as a great shock to me because it had never occurred to me that the environment didn't clean itself. I thought that water that flows along a creek was purified by sunlight, and I guess I didn't know a lot about where pollution came from. When I learned at the time of Earth Day how much pollution there was and how bad pesticides were, I instantly became very active in the pollution area of the environment. In the wake of Earth Day, Doris Solarius drew upon her master's degree in biology from Columbia University to become a leading grassroots activist and environmental organizer, especially against the use of pesticides and other toxic chemicals. 
Within the Sierra Club, she became head of several local and national committees that focused on empowering people in campaigns for hazardous waste cleanup and solid waste management. In her oral history interview from 2002, Doris Solarius reflected on the impetus behind her decades of environmental activism. Quote, I learned at Earth Day there was pollution. So I think, having learned there was pollution, I decided that people should find out ways to stop creating that pollution. Doris Solarius wasn't the only person whose life was changed by the events of Earth Day in Ann Arbor. As a graduate student in forestry, a young Sierra Club member named Doug Scott co-organized the nation's very first Earth Day teach-in at the University of Michigan. Their teach-in included the cast from the musical Hair, the governor of Michigan, several U.S. senators, as well as a public trial of the American car, which the students convicted of murder and sentenced to death by sledgehammer. I strongly encourage you to read the Sierra Club oral history of Doug Scott, who not only witnessed these events, but helped make them happen. Fifty years ago, in 1970, the dynamic events surrounding the first Earth Day reflected how environmental issues could rapidly mobilize new publics for radical reform and institutional action. Indeed, the small organization created to nationally coordinate the first Earth Day took the name Environmental Action. Dennis Hayes, the then 25-year-old national coordinator for Environmental Action, announced on Earth Day, We are building a movement, a movement that values people more than technology, people more than political boundaries and political ideologies, people more than profit. This exuberance for a new kind of environmental movement, according to historian John McNeil, arose in a context of countercultural critique of any and all established orthodoxies. But at its root, Earth Day and the flowering of concern for spaceship Earth and all travelers on it constituted a complaint against economic orthodoxy. According to John McNeil, it was a critique of the faith of economists and engineers and their programs to improve life on Earth. For new adherents to this ecological insight, the popularity of Earth Day's events contributed collectively to a general sense that things were out of whack and business as usual was responsible. All that sounds terribly familiar today. This year, on the golden anniversary of Earth Day, life all across the planet is out of whack and business as usual has come to a sudden stop from climate change to the novel coronavirus to the deteriorating conditions of American politics, a slew of increasingly complex and interconnected problems affect us all. But perhaps this moment, like the one in 1970, offers a unique opportunity to think how we might begin things anew. Perhaps, as Rene Dubose advised on the first Earth Day in April 1970, we in 2020 can, quote, take time to reevaluate what is needed for quality of life, to sift and sort alternatives, to look in a new way at what the future could be like, and then devise plans for making it so. May it be so. May you help make it so. Thanks for listening to the Berkeley Remix. We'll catch up with you next time. And in the meantime, from all of us here at the Oral History Center, we wish you our best.